Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The artist David Driscoll made a profound impact with his painting, scholarly work, and as a curator. He also was special to Atlanta for his close relationship with the High Museum. In 2005, the museum established the David Driscoll Prize, the first national award to honor contributions to the field of African-American art for both artists and scholars. This year's prize will be awarded on April 30th. David Driscoll, Icons of Nature and History, is the first major survey of his work since the artist died last year. The show is on view now, and later this hour we'll hear from the High Museum curator Michael Brooks. First, just a few of the names associated with the Apollo Theater in New York include Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, and now Leatrice Elsie, the executive director of Hammond's House Museum in Atlanta, will become senior director of programming for the Apollo. She joins us now via Zoom. Leatrice Elsie, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you so much for having me. Well, congratulations. This is huge. How did the opportunity to work for this storied institution come about? Well, you know, actually, they called me, and um, they had an opportunity available, and I got a call in December. And, you know, the funny thing is that the call, it was the end of the year, and so the call kept coming in. And, you know, every time I would walk away that, you know, I'd come back and this number was there. And I'm just like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I, you know, so then in January, they actually sent a note. And, you know, the beautiful thing, Lois, is that, you know, when they were going through this process, they actually had 
people around the country make recommendations on who they should, you know, they, they did it a few ways. I mean, the, they put the rest, you know, put it out there in the world, but then they had people around the country make recommendations. And so when the recruiter called me, she said, you know, you've come highly recommended by your colleagues across the country. And that was so warming, you know, because, you know, you do this work and you don't really, you don't really know who's paying attention, who's watching, you just are doing the work. And to, uh, when they started telling me, like after that we got into the process and they were telling me about, you know, just the people who had recommended me for the position. Um, and they said, um, someone said, you should call Leatrice. If you can get her out of Atlanta, you'll be doing something. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And it was just a really beautiful, um, you know, just mix of people who I've worked with over the years, you know, at various institutions, at foundations. Um, and it was just really beautiful. And especially since I kind of been out of the performative space for a while, because, you know, I've been at Hammond's house for four years now. And so at that point, you know, I really had kind of, you know, so I hadn't been on the circuit. I hadn't been in the mix, um, you know, with the performative um, folks for a while. But, you know, the fact that the work that I've done had made that type of impression on them was just really beautiful. And so that's how it came about. And so I went through, they called me and, and they were like, can you come to New York next week to talk to us? And so I did and went through a process of um, three experiences with them. Um, one was a, a first interview. The second was um, they wanted me to put together a sample season. You know, what, how would I program the Apollo? And then that got me to the last round where it was just me and one other person and I went to New York and sat down with the team at the Apollo, um, with each department. Um, and then they called me so that I was, I was it. <laughs> oh, gosh. I can only imagine how you must have been pinching yourself. It was exciting. It was a very, very exciting moment. But as much as it was an exciting moment um, for me, it was a surprising moment because it was unexpected. And so for the Hammonds house, you know, I had to sit down with the board. I literally, the Apollo made the offer to me. I called our board chair and that evening I was on the phone with our, our executive committee, you know, because it would, you know, it had major ramifications. That was not a, a move that was um, expected. And we had some things planned, you know, for the museum and was it the best time for me to, to exit the museum? And so quite frankly, um, this all happened last February. So it was a year ago. <laughs> really? When, yeah, when I accepted the position. The Apollo had, and you know, so what we decided was that I would stay on because then COVID happened. And so the, initially I was to move to New York in May of last year, but then COVID happened, which changed everything and it changed timelines and, you know, just kind of the whole movement of everything. And so um, the Apollo has actually been very wonderful in allowing me to continue my work as executive director of the Hammonds House because COVID hit and it was like the wrong time for me to be moving on, you know, for the institution. And so the Apollo has been very gracious and was like, do what you need to do. So I have literally been working for both organizations for a year. My goodness. But it was, it, it was actually a blessing in disguise because it allowed us to really put the museum on a stronger footing because, you know, I don't know what would have happened if um, I had not still been there kind of trying to, you know, steady the ship during COVID. 
because you know we we shut down we you know our revenue it was was impacted i mean there were so many things that were impacted like with other organizations and so to make that major change in the midst of all of, all of that just did not make sense so yeah so it, it really worked out um, so that now it is the organization, the museum is ripe for the next director to come in and just take the, the reins and just keep on moving. And then I have had a year of working with the Apollo. So I walk into this space now, like as I physically walk into the space, um, you know, in the upcoming months, knowing my colleagues, I've been doing programming there for a year. So it really, is probably a, the best of both worlds, you know? So I don't come in, I didn't come in fresh and new. I had a year of digital, you know, digital interaction with everyone before I kind of show up. So it really has worked out pretty well. Well, knowing you had a pretty robust offering online at Hammond's house with events. So knowing all of this now makes me think you must not have slept very much in 2020. And you know what, Lois, I have not, and I look forward to a nap. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Senior Director of Programming for the Apollo, what are your tasks? My tasks are really to look at the, you know, our, our mission and um, the direction. We have, an ex uh, we have an amazing executive producer, um, Camilo Forbes, and uh, I mean, a real visionary. She um, is the, you know, so she really kind of sets the tone of, okay, so this is who we are artistically, you know, so she has already laid that down. We're looking at, you know, this whole idea of the Apollo creating a new 21st century canon. And so that is an idea that she had been developing when I arrived. Um, and so we've had a year to kind of massage that to see what does that really mean. And so under, within that framework is how I will do my work, you know, and so it is commissioning new artists, but also looking at, you know, artists who are already, you know, out here doing their thing, but need that additional support or that are doing like really cutting edge and interesting programs that um, and projects that um, need support and needs, you know, help, you know, just kind of, um, you know, currying it through. And so we have a whole, whole set of those types of artists. And then there's also, you know, what we do in our historic building in the main stage. And so I also am responsible for that. You know, I've been in situations in the artistic role at the National Black Arts Festival, as well as the Hammond's House, where, you know, I was pretty solely responsible for the programmatic ideas. The difference at the Apollo is that I really do have a, um, I have a team. Um, and then there's a lot of um, programs that come to the Apollo, you know, just from outside sources that are, you know, because everybody wants to be at the Apollo, you know, so I have been very surprised at the sheer number of projects that come our way. Um, it's been very, very surprising and exciting because, I mean, major, <laughs> major projects and it's everything from classical music to you know, to hip hop and then theater and dance and everything in between because the Apollo also has shifted from just being the house where you see great concerts. You started this with um, talking about all the amazing people who have graced that stage at the Apollo. And so it's like, yeah, it's all of that. That's who we are. 
but we're also dance and we're also theater and we're also literature, you know? And so I get to um, kind of go back to my old National Black Arts Festival life of being a generalist, you know, where I really do get to engage all of it. Indeed. So it's exciting. Yeah. The, the very name of the theater, Apollo, was the Greek god of music and knowing the musicians who've performed on that stage. It's a who's who of great musicians in America. The Apollo Theater opened in 1914 as a burlesque theater restricted to white patrons. And then in 1932, when the mayor of New York banned burlesque, the venue languished for a few years. It fell into disrepair before theater impresario Sidney Cohen took on the lease, and he renamed it the Apollo. What did it mean to the residents of Harlem to have the Apollo Theater? in the neighborhood? You know, it meant a lot to the residents of um, Harlem. I am amazed at the love that Harlemites have for that Apollo because the Apollo, you know, while it, yes, it is a music venue and, you know, all of those types of things, people can come there and have these experiences, but also, you know, they have really, really deep roots in that, in that Harlem community as well. And they, you know, we've got a, we have a community, a whole community development, you know, area whose whole focus is how do you continue to connect Harlem to the um, Apollo, even as the Apollo continues to grow. And so that Pete Harlem always sees themselves within the walls of the Apollo. So they're very focused and intentional about that. And so back then, um, after, you know, Black people were not allowed in the venue, the Apollo really became one of the um, only one of the first venues to allow Black patrons in. And so that was a big deal. And so, you know, that is the stage that Billie Holiday sang Strange Fruit on when they didn't want her to sing Strange Fruit at all, and certainly not to a Harlem audience. Um, didn't really know how that was going to come across. I mean, so we listened to the stories like Eartha Kitt. Um, Eartha Kitt had been, you know, celebrated by white audiences all over the world, um, had never played the Apollo. She was terrified to come uptown and play the Apollo. And when she hit the stage, there was a standing ovation so long that, I mean, it took her breath away. So there are so many amazing stories about the history of the Apollo. James Brown proclaiming I'm black and I'm proud at the Apollo and his, his relationship with the Apollo that was so ongoing and so deep that when he died, they laid him in state at the Apollo. So, um, you know, so the, I mean, we, the stories, and I've, I've heard so many great stories and behind the scenes since I've been there um, because they really do keep that, you know, front and center. You know, Marvin Gaye, the Motown Review. I mean, there's so many amazing stories. And also I, I would encourage people to um, check out HBO. Um, there is a Apollo documentary that we actually won an Emmy for last year that is on, on, the, um, on the HBO, which is absolutely beautiful, but it really does tell the story of the Apollo. It's definitely a crown jewel in the performing arts space, especially when we talk about Black art, Black performances. And so this expansion from just a commercial music house into a performing arts center is one that's really, really exciting because now the Apollo can do for other areas 
what it has done for music. And so that's just really exciting. And I'm so happy to be joining a team at this time when they really are rethinking themselves for the 21st century and rethinking how to be a center for um, like really a, a, a center for artistic excellence across the board. And so it's actually, again, it's just really, really exciting. So you hit it on the head when you said I must have been so excited. I was. <laughs> I was asked. I was absolutely thrilled. And, you know, especially someone who's worked in Black art and culture, you know, for my entire career in the arts. And so, you know, you just kind of keep on moving, you know, through institutions. Um, but the Apollo really does become that apex institution, you know, 87 years um, that it has been around um, through its ups and downs. You know, the Apollo has had, um, you know, ups, but it has also had some, some lows. Um, but the last low that it had, you know, after Percy Sutton had to let, when he, they had to shutter their doors, but then the state of New York stepped in and it became a national treasure and its, its status changed. And then that's when it became the nonprofit organization that it is today. So it's exciting. It's very, very exciting, Lois. And I really do appreciate this opportunity to, you know, just come on and share my good news with everyone, um, but also to like really welcome um, you know, people welcome Atlanta to Harlem. <laughs> I look forward to knocking on your door as soon as it's safe to visit. Beatrice Elsie, you have done amazing things for arts and culture in Atlanta. And I congratulate you on this enormous step in your life. I know you will be fabulous for the Apollo. Well, Lois, I appreciate that. And I also really want to say that I appreciate Atlanta. You know, I started my career at the Woodruff Art Center directing a project called Spirit and Splendor, a celebration of Black art and culture. And I came out of Georgia Public Broadcasting into that position. And um, that was really my beginning in art. And that was in 1999. And so my journey here has been just a beautiful, beautiful journey. And I have had support, supporters from even back then have continued to walk with me, you know, all the way through up until, you know, me being, up to me being at the Hammond's house. And so I just really appreciate Atlanta embracing me and embracing me on my artistic journey. And I hope that the work that I have done artistically and culturally, which has touched on the intellectual, you know, I really hope that that work has fed people. Um, in this city. And I just am very, very grateful for, you know, Atlanta making me, <laughs> you know, we, we talk about where we're from, but Atlanta, I am Atlanta made, you know, in terms of my professional passion. I found that here in Atlanta and have been able to, you know, like really explore it and elevate the work that these artists and these thinkers and, you know, scholars and everyone in between has been able to do, and it has been my great pleasure to do so. Executive Director Leatrice Elsie will remain with the Hammonds House Museum through May. Then she'll devote all of her time to her role as Senior Director of Programming at the Apollo Theater in New York. In a moment, the African-American artist David Driscoll's works on view at the High Museum. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The Howard University art historian James A. Porter once said to David Driscoll, you have a good mind, so you can't just be a painter. You're going to have to help define the field and keep the tradition going. David Driscoll was a painter, a curator, author, and scholar who died last April at age 88. He had close ties to the High Museum, and now the High presents his first posthumous show, David Driscoll, Icons of Nature and History. The High Museum's Michael Rooks curated the exhibition. He joins us now via Zoom. Michael, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's so great to be with you again. Would you talk about David Driscoll's relationship with the High? Absolutely. Uh, David has a long history with the High Museum. It actually goes back to 1977, even though he's perhaps best known to our audience and our family from the Driscoll Prize that we uh, have been awarding since 2005. In 1977, David's exhibition, his groundbreaking exhibition, Two Centuries of Black American Art traveled to the High Museum. And it was the first major exhibition that revealed to the American public the contributions of Black Americans to American visual culture. And the High Museum was one of four venues uh, for that exhibition. It was organized by the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in 1976. And Driscoll curated it. And David was the guest curator for that exhibition, absolutely. Uh, there was a bit of a controversy, actually, in the organization of that exhibition, and David was selected as the, the guest curator for it by members of L.A. County Museum. Do tell us about the controversy, Michael. Uh, there were some uh, resignations uh, by staff who objected to an exhibition dedicated to Black Americans, frankly. In 1976? Absolutely. So it shows you how far we've come in nearly 50 years. So David, of course, took the reins and curated a brilliant exhibition that was eye-opening to not only Americans, but to the, to the world, and revealed that American visual culture includes Black visual culture. It's, it's one of the same. What was his relationship with the high in terms of his own creations? We have a relatively large 
collection of his work at the High Museum. And David as an artist, in my experience of David and uh, my memory of David, uh, such a sweet and generous person, generous in spirit and in every way, was very outspoken as a critic and as a curator and as a scholar. And as an artist, he was quiet. And so I think that's why this exhibition is so important because so many of us know his enormous contribution to the shaping of Black art American history, but fewer people uh, are familiar with his work as an artist. You know, it's, it's like he put into praxis or he practiced what he preached, essentially. His theory is made visual through his work as an artist. And that's rare, it's incredibly rare to, to find an artist who is both a scholar and academic who can show uh, or rather reveal to his audience uh, how he himself can interpret his own theoretical work. How would you describe Driscoll's style? Uh, I would describe his style as a realist. And he, he, his style evolved from the late 40s through to the end of his life. He was influenced by a number of different artists who made figurative painting. Uh, for example, Jack Levine is an American social realist uh, with whom Driscoll studied at Skowhegan. And so Levine's work uh, was influenced by the French Fauvist, uh, Jacques Rouault, uh, very heavy figures, black, dark outlines, dark uh, backgrounds. And so David's early sort of social realist work was inspired by someone like Jack Levine. But his brilliant sense of color came from artists like uh, Lois Melu Jones, with whom he studied at Howard University, and also Morris Lewis, uh, who taught him at Howard University. And two artists who were coming from two different, completely different uh, worlds, uh, Lois Melu Jones from uh, uh, the world of figurative pictorial work, and Morris Lewis, a completely abstract work. And so David had this wonderful, these wonderful kind of polar opposite experiences of great artists in history with, from whom he, he learned. Michael, you've talked about how Triscoll endowed his subjects with a kind of frisson like that of an electrical charge. Would you elaborate? For me, if you, when you come to see the exhibition and uh, once we progress past the early work, which is incredibly powerful, but very dark and somber, and uh, the tone of the work is uh, subdued. All of a sudden, his palace sort of wakes up, and uh, there are sort of like between edges of shapes and objects in his work. Uh, there are uh, areas of color that just seem to be electric. They seem to just uh, uh, emit light, and that is because of his wonderful sense of color and color relationships in his work. And that, in turn, gives his subjects this kind of energy and, and this, uh, this wonderful sense of presence and urgency as well. I was hoping that you would talk about the significance of the title of the exhibition, Icons of Nature and History. Yeah, the title refers to David's interest in symbolic form. And for him, he, he found symbolic form in, in nature, both as a young man who grew up in West North Carolina, in Appalachia, and uh, also as a young artist who started painting plein air at Skowhegan in Maine. Uh, he eventually built a studio 
in Falmouth, Maine, and it is a place he returned every year. He built it in 1961 uh, and returns every year to make these wonderful homages to uh, the landscape that surrounded him. Pine trees became uh, a leitmotif in his work. And so as you walk through the exhibition, you'll see in the early work, pine trees uh, uh, are something that he, he adopted early in his career from his experience at Skowhegan as a kind of personal metaphor because pine trees are evergreen and they go through rough patches, you know, in the, in the cold of winter and they thrive in the sunshine and the sun of spring and summer. And so he, I think, thought of pine trees as a kind of a personal metaphor for his own struggle as an artist and also as a black American. And you see that he makes this connection between pine trees, which are essentially vertical objects with horizontal bars crossing them, limbs, the limbs of the trees are these vertical, vertical axes, that he makes this sort of conceptual leap to the cross, the crucifixion of Christ. And so in the same space, we have uh, his early uh, black crucifixion paintings starting in 1955 with these paintings of pine trees. So you can see that there is this thought process that connects the wonderful, wonderfully spiritual aspect of nature and also David's uh, mournful paintings of the crucifixion of Christ, which for him was an expression of national uh, suffering and mourning for the murder uh, of Emmett Till in 1955. Anyway, so, so, there, so there you have two different aspects, I, two different icons. You've got nature, the, these pine trees that, that were metaphor, this powerful metaphor for David Driscoll, and then the icon of Christ and the cross, which for him was a, a, a powerful icon for salvation for David. This exhibition is massive. You spend seven decades of Driscoll's career. How long was the show in the planning, Michael? Yeah, I mean, he hasn't even been gone a year. Right. Well, we were hoping that we could celebrate David's 90th birthday uh, with him at the opening of the show. And very sadly, that did not uh, work out. But we've been working on the exhibition with our colleagues at the Portland Museum of Art who are the co-organizers of the exhibition. And in fact, the curator is Julie McGee, who chronicled David's life uh, earlier in, in a book called David uh, C. Driscoll, uh, Artist and Scholar. So she did the curatorial heavy lifting for the exhibition. And we've all been working on it together for about three or four years. And the exhibition is accompanied by a beautifully illustrated catalog with several contributions including one by yourself. What was your role in assembling the catalog? Most of the contributions to the catalog are in the form of short essays, short appreciations of David uh, as an artist. And my work uh, considers David's artwork uh, from the point of view of his spiritual practice. No doubt you've heard David speak in the past at our Driscoll uh, Prize celebrations and elsewhere. And he spoke like a preacher. It was incredibly motivating and inspirational to hear him speak with such force and such conviction. And uh, in my work for the, for the catalog, I, I try to draw a parallel between his voice as a scholar and an historian and his voice as an artist by suggesting painting for him wasn't uh, act of liturgy, uh, something that he repeated uh, day after day in the same space with the same tools that for him were uh, in, in a way sacred, painting the same trees that again for him were something that were sacred. And he always 
brought the spiritual into his remarks about art and art history as well. He was not shy about doing that, even though it's not at all fashionable. In fact, we're not supposed to do that <laughs> as art historians. <laughs> Will there be a Driscoll Prize winner for this year? This year we'll be honoring the previous Driscoll Prize honoree. His name is Jamal Cyrus, uh, a Houston-based artist. Uh, because of uh, the pandemic uh, and because we've uh, been all sheltering in place for a year, uh, we thought it would be appropriate to honor Jamal Cyrus's work in appropriate David Driscoll fashion this year. So will that be in person? Since since the pandemic, we've always been rephrasing our plans in terms of access to the museum's collections and our programs. Uh, and so I think that's how we will approach this year's Driscoll Prize celebration. Uh, we'll continue to uh, uh, appraise the situation to see if it is safe and advisable to do that. Michael Rooks, it's clear you are passionate about David Driscoll's art and his contributions to art. Thank you very much. Always thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Michael Rooks is the High Museum Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art. David Driscoll, Icons of Nature and History, will be on view at the High through May 9th. The Driscoll Prize Celebration will be held virtually on April 30th at 6 p.m. Up next, Hoarders Meets Antiques Roadshow, Matt Paxton from Legacy List. This is WABE Atlanta. There's real history in our attics and basements. That is a quote from Matt Paxton, a decluttering expert with an enormous following and host of Legacy List with Matt Paxton, a PBS series airing nationally and on our PBS station, ATL-PBA. He joins us now via Zoom. Matt, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. How did you become a decluttering, downsizing expert? Well, I jokingly say I failed at everything else. But uh, the truth is, my, I lost my dad, my stepdad, and both my grandfathers all died in, in one year when I was a kid. Oh, how horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, you know, it wasn't like a tragic bar fight or anything. It's just, just bad timing. And um, I had four houses to clean out and I was a 24-year-old kid. And I remember just going through the house. I was grieving. I was sad. It was 21 years ago. And uh, I was just lost as a person. And I remember thinking, this is awful. And my grandfather had always said to me, if something's really awful, do it as a business because people will pay you to do it. <laughs> and... Man, he was right. What I didn't know is I would fall in love with the people and the stories. Ah, and that's really what distinguishes you from other shows. You did work on Hoarders. I did. 12 seasons I worked on Hoarders. I say it's the Mount Everest of decluttering. You know <laughs> I can clean a mess that big, but most people don't need me to. Okay, for those who may not be familiar with Antiques Roadshow 
and finding your roots, although we'd like to think that most of our listeners are because NPR and PBS go hand in hand. How would you describe Legacy List? Well, the way you just implied it, it's a good mix of Antiques Roadshow and Finding Your Roots. And I'm honored when people say that, I'm honored to even be included with those two shows. But what we're doing is we're finding the items in your home and we share the really fond stories of your loved ones. And I think the difference is we purposefully don't talk about the financial value. We only want to know the emotional value. If this was your grandfather's, tell me about your grandfather. If this ring was your grandmother's, tell me about your grandma. I want to know the story. I don't care what it's worth. Who are the other experts on this show and what are their specialties? Our crew is kind of a unique crew. They're, they're friends from my past. You know, I, I've been on TV helping people for about 10 years now, but I've been doing it in real life for 20. And so these are people that I took from the real world. Mike Kelleher is really my pop culture expert, and he knows everything from, gosh, Pokemon cards to baseball cards to stamps to coins. I met him selling, he was selling antique Christmas sweaters out of his van. <laughs> and when I met him, I was like, what are you doing? He goes, I pick them up at flea, at, uh, flea markets all around the country. And then I sell them the month of December. And I was like, you just met the one guy in the world that you need to meet to do this. And we've been working together for 10 years. So he's really just the stuff you don't think about. Avi Hopkins uh, is a good friend. We actually ran track against each other in high school, believe it or not. He's a community uh, activist and organizer in, in Richmond, Virginia, and, and worked for me for many years. But he's kind of our military and faith expert, believe it or not, in African-American history. And so we, that's actually new history when you think about it. There's, you know, it's less than 100 years, a lot of the artifacts attached to African-American history. And so he's, and, but he's also a military school guy. <laughs> he played football at VMI. And then Jamie is our clothes and really fashion expert. And believe it or not, we find a lot of clothes when we're helping people downsize. Oh, I'm not surprised at all. When you watch the show, you forget that it's really a show about downsizing. It was supposed to be a show about watching 65 plus people make that final decision of, you know, they're going to move out of the house they've been in for 30 to 50 years. And we, it kind of accidentally became a show about history. Really, I just, I love helping people clean out their attics and I, know, and I hear the great stories. And a lot of times the history that we, we didn't really anticipate this, every family has an amazing history. And so we just get lost in the stories of life and stuff. And we forget that people are moving. Well, what are the qualifications for each of the families to appear on this show? Qualifications, they need to be willing. That's number one. And when you know we're on season two, getting ready for season three, we're actually casting for season three now. For me, it's really about diversity, obviously, number one right now. We don't need to hear any more stories about the Civil War. We've covered that. Uh, we really want to hear stories that you just wouldn't know. The first episode, we had a lady that, she, we, we had a 44-star flag in her attic. And I said, well, how did you get it? She goes, well, my, my grandfather got it. I don't know how he got it. So we had to go find out that history. It turns out he was a train conductor. He happened to be the conductor on one of the trains that drove that day that Utah became a state. It ended up being her great-grandfather, not her grandfather. And he just the, the, we're, the only assumption we can come up with is that the flag was on the train. And he thought, wow, I'll take it. <laughs> and Because there was no flag stores back then. And so for us, it's just someone that's curious and willing. We obviously like characters. The beauty of working with 70 and 80-year-olds is their filter is gone. 
and they tell us really great, amazing stories. Well, how do they apply to be on the show? I do a lot of, you know, I work with AARP, I'll work with Leading Age, which is a senior living community organization. Now people just watch it and they go on our website. They go to mylegacylist.com and they apply. It's usually like the oldest adult daughter or the oldest adult granddaughter. And they're typically calling us and saying, man, you got to feature my grandma or you got to feature my grandpa. Or they'll call and just say, hey, I got this one item. I don't know what it is. And we start to dig a little bit and we just get curious. And it's really fun. Even the casting. I mean, not every family gets to be on the show, but you know, I get to interview a lot of families that never even make the show, but they, you know, we say, oh, hey, I don't, you're not going to make the show, but I know exactly what that silver is. And your grandmother would have had to have gotten it in England at this time frame. And then that helps them with their genealogical research or just their, you know, helps them get started. And that's, that's really fun. But for us, it's, you don't need to be famous. We just want you to be curious and open and willing to tell stories. Matt, you're talking about the fun. It must also be challenging to help people sort through their personal and emotionally valuable items. How do you help these individuals provide clarity as to what they should keep and what they should get rid of? That's one of my favorite questions. I think that's where my experience on hoarders really helped because I can tell you that the bad ending to that story, it all gets thrown away, you know? And so I help people really narrow in on their, and that's why we call it legacy list to say, what you know, what are the five, six things that really matter in your life? What are the five, you know, if your house catches on fire, you got two minutes, what are you going to grab? And that's such a morbid way to say it, but we just really try to focus on the positive. And then that's one thing I love about this show is it's super positive. It's not negative. There's no drama. We just want to tell the good stories. And so we don't start in the attic because the attic and the basement and the garage is where you put things you don't want to address. And it's usually because something bad has happened, a lot, you know, a loss or death or, or, or divorce or something bad. And so what we typically do is we'll, we'll start somewhere fun and positive and we get humor going, but then we do when, when we know the person's ready, we, we head into the attic and we face the fears of those, those items, because so many times we put it up there because we want to avoid it. And we just say, hey, let's not avoid it. We got, you know, and if we have to bring a therapist, we bring a therapist, but we try to just have fun and we bring family involved and we and we get it to be a really positive thing. And I think people at the end of the day, believe it or not, being a good listener is really the most effective tool. We'll start conversations. Like I'll say, hey, here's a picture of you when you're 18. And I see that that is not your husband. Who is that man you're with, right? And then everybody starts laughing. And they're like, oh, that's Fernando. You know, and they all start laughing. <laughs> and so I get people telling good stories. And and that's just the way to start this process. And then, uh, and usually it just kind of rolls out from there. But you have to listen. You have to be willing to listen. And whether you're on a TV show or you're in the real life on your own at home, you've got to invest the time to hear these stories and to share them. Well, you mentioned not going into the attic, the basement, or the garage first off. I think that what overwhelms me is that things I have not addressed are unmade decisions. Listening to you talk, I am reminded that I have Boxes of photographs from my mom who passed away 11 years ago and my mother-in-law who passed away eight years ago. And 
It's painful to look at those, but I am not proud of the fact, Matt, that I have these boxes effectively screaming at me. You're setting me up for my favorite quote, which is, give yourself some grace. When you put those boxes there, you needed to leave them there. Now you don't need them there. You've grown. And that sounds so cheesy, but they're stepping stones. I really love that. Our attic is a stepping stone when you think about it this way. When we put the items there, we weren't ready to address those feelings. And so it was a safe place to put them there for the same reasons you just said it. But the guilt is something you can let go. You don't need to feel guilty about it. It's just now, it's, it's, it's time, and now you're in a place that you can go through them. One technique is to, I, you, I mean, you hit the hardest thing, boxes of pictures from my mother. I don't care if you're 15, 50, or 100. That's a really, really tough relationship in a good way. And you feel, we all feel guilty. Oh, my mom gets me. You know, I, my mom's 72. We're really good friends, but I still feel really guilty when I let my mom down, right? In anything. And all my clients feel that way, no matter where they are in life. I'd be like, well, how would your mom feel about this? And she goes, oh, my mom died in 73. And I'm like, well, do you think she'd be upset about it? And the lady goes, yes, she would. <laughs> and she's, you know, and so we still, I think we forget our relationships still continue after someone's deceased. And so that's where that guilt's from. But I say, give yourself a little grace, man. You, you had to leave it there for a while. And, and sometimes, I mean, I just moved myself and I was going through stuff with my dad's that he left me 20 years ago. And I just wasn't ready to go through them yet. Well, I appreciate that kind advice. It's very sympathetic. Yeah, I read you recently moved from Richmond, Virginia to a house here in Georgia. And your fiance, Zoe Kim, designed this small minimalist house. Yes. She's also the author of Minimalism for Families. Since moving to Georgia in November, how does it feel to be living simpler? I have to tell you, I really like it. I was kind of against it. I was in a I'll believe it when I see it scenario. But, you know, the minimalistic spirit is right, which is less stuff leaves more lo- room for life. And with seven kids, it really forces that. Like, if you're cleaning up after seven kids, there's no time for you and your spouse. And what we found is less stuff is just, it's great. I mean, we, we spend more time together as a family. We really are able to go out and do things. And I don't spend all my time cleaning up after everybody. I don't spend all my time doing yard work. I'm actually just hanging out and enjoying life. And it's funny stuff that I really struggled over. Should I bring it? Should I not? Somebody asked me, well, what did you leave behind? And I go, I don't remember. But I know I was really upset about it. Oh. <laughs> you know, if three months later, I don't, I don't know. Couldn't tell you what it was. It doesn't matter. You know, it's just stuff. And you know, you could wrap my whole career up in that. At the end of the day, it's just stuff. And if you've got your relationships and you've got your your health, I mean, this is so cheesy, but really that's all you need. You know, my grandparents, they lived off the land. I mean, they hunt and fish their own food, they grew their own food, they had their own energy. You talk about renewable energy, they were tough people. And they were some of the happiest people I ever met, you know, and so I'm, I'm learning to kind of live a much happier life with less. And that's definitely because of my fiance. Was it like filming during the pandemic? Season two 
was filmed after COVID hit. Yeah, we filmed right in the middle of COVID and Black Lives Matters. It was challenging and not for the reasons you would think. I mean, we're a big show on PBS. We have, we're a great production company. So safety was pretty standard. Social distancing and the masks. And we would take our masks off for the filming part, the talking part, but everyone behind the camera was masked all the time. The isolation for me was tough. I'm a people person. I need to, I mean, I help people for a living. So I need to hug them. I need to give high fives. The no hugging was really difficult because it's kind of a, a, an easier way to avoid talking about your feelings. If you hug someone, you don't have to talk. And this is an emotional show. And when I wasn't allowed to hug or high five or shake hands, we were forced to deal with emotion with our words. And that's really challenging for some people. And I, I miss hugging people, man. I really need to hug. Like I miss hugging yeah. too. I mean, high fives, whatever, even a handshake. I can go without that. But the hugs, like we got to bring those back somehow. I mean, <laughs> like it's just, I missed it. It was hard. We missed a couple really good stories because it just wasn't safe for that person. We are working with 65 plus individuals usually. I had one lady that was a uh, one of the Ray Letts. She was she sang backup for Ray Charles for 35 years. Oh wow! And she was moving, and she called me one night. She said, "Man, I'm just really worried. I'm afraid it's not safe for everybody to come here." And she had she she finally had told us she had. And not tested positive, but she was around people at her church that had had it. And I said, yeah, you're right. We can't come. It's not safe for you and it's not safe for us. And so that was a story I'm really super bummed to lose, but you just had to choose safety first. And I'm a big believer in like everything works out the way it's supposed to work out. So, I mean, I, honestly, I think we had our best season to date. I actually also filmed one episode of Hoarders during COVID and nothing changed because we wore our masks the whole time on Hoarders anyway. So like every, everything was the exact same on that show. I'm, I'm anxious to, we, we're delaying our, our filming a little bit, hoping that more people will be, will have been inoculated by then. Speaking of the pandemic, many families and individuals have downsized and decluttered their homes since they've had more time at home. What piece of advice would you give someone about to downsize or declutter? So I got a couple here. First one is take your time. It's really important not to rush through it because I really need you to share the stories. It's a lot. I mean, one thing I've learned doing this for 20 years, when you tell the story, people are more willing to either let go of the item or believe it or not, some generations now want that item. I think many of us are under the impression that our grandkids don't want our stuff. And that's not true. They don't know the full story behind it. They don't know the trials and tribulations and they don't, I mean, like I think about the things my grandmother went without during the war and how she saved and worked hard and if I knew the full story, when I did find out the full stories, it was like, oh, yeah, I really want that item. And as a kid, I, I didn't care about those things. So I, I tell people, share those stories. Take your time to share them. And the third one people forget is you need to have an audience. So don't do this by yourself. You need to find it. You can do it on Zoom. You don't have to do it in person. I've had a lot of families that I've found out after watching the show. They started doing Legacy List Zoom nights, which is Grandma or grandpa would take an item, two or three items, 
And then all the kids get around on Zoom and they tell the stories of those items and all the kids get to hear them and they recorded it on Zoom. And so now they have that in their family archives. And I, I mean, that costs nothing other than time. And I just love that. I mean, kids, three generations are hearing stories from grandma and grandpa and it takes what, half an hour? You have to be patient and you have to set the time aside to do it. And I just think it's really important to share those stories because I've seen hundreds of families that come up to me and they say, ah, oh, I really wanted to record my mom's stories, but she passed before we got them. And you've probably got in that box of pictures that you just mentioned, how many of those stories go away when your mom passed away? Yeah. And so that's why I say, like, write the stories down. That's the, that's the, the other one. Like if you are the person that holds those stories, go through the pictures and just either tell the story into a into your phone or into, an, you know, some kind of recording device or even write down the names because a lot of us, once we pass away, those stories are gone and we do have the time right now to do it. So Matt, you're saying that the pandemic has influenced the way many people view their possessions in a good way. I think so. Yes. I really do think the pandemic has been good. I used to, I was worried at the beginning that it would just create more hoarders. And what I didn't understand was how much family and relationships, how valuable they've become during the pandemic. You know, like we don't care about stuff as much as we used to. We care more about family time. For a lot of people, the pandemic's been a good thing. I know a lot of people that it forced them to get their life together. For a lot of people, it's been awful. Don't get me wrong. And I don't want to underestimate the, the loss and the devastation for many people. But for a lot of families, it's made them closer. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And I think that's been a good thing. And, and we were really lucky to have new shows during that because it's encouraged people and inspired people to share their stories and to tell their stories and to even go through that junk drawer and to go through that box of pictures. Do it one hour. That's more than you did yesterday. And I think that's a good, you do one hour a week and eventually, you know, you'll be through that box. And I, and it, I think it does let go of that guilt that you talk about. So many of us have this, it, it's a very generational thing but so many of us carry this guilt of going through our stuff. And you could do an hour a week right now. That's doable. Matt, you are not just a decluttering expert. You are a family therapist and <laughs> a philosopher. And I think it has just been a joy to talk with you. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be on your show. Matt Paxton, host of the PBS series Legacy List. You can see new episodes every Wednesday at 5 p.m. on our PBS station, ATL PBA. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., ancient poetry feels surprisingly current in new short films from the U.K. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. Special thanks to Kevin Rinker today. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archive stories at wabe.org slash 
City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.